1: go to TrustArk.com slash dash free trial You're listening to Serious Privacy by TrustArk. Please
2: welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. Welcome to
3: Serious Privacy, and thank you for joining us. Today, my co-host, Paul Breitbart, is out, and so we are welcoming in a new co-host. You've heard from him before, Ralph O'Brien. and. This is one of our Weeks in Privacy sessions, so this is going to be just Ralph and myself shooting the breeze, and I'll warn you, without Paul here, there's no rules. There are no (laughs) rules. So here we go. My name is Kay Royal.
2: And I'm Ralph O'Brien.
3: And welcome to Serious Privacy. So, Ralph, we actually just started talking before we even started the recording about what we wanted to talk about. And I realized we should just stop talking about what we want to talk about and talk about it.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, let's go. I mean, there's always plenty to talk about.
3: Let's just make it happen. Okay, we have to do the unexpected question first, which, by the way, this is always an unexpected question. Okay, I'm just going to go to the one that opened up. What was your last great meal? And that is M E A L. Everybody laughs at how I say it.
2: <laughs> My last great meal. Wow. Let me think about that for a moment. I'd love to say it was something fancy and that I'd been to a beautiful, wonderful restaurant. But sadly, at the moment, you know, this being in the COVID 19, we, we don't get out a lot. So, Yeah, I I did have a very good piece of steak at the weekend. I managed to disappear down to the butchers and bring in quite a large piece of steak. And apologies to any vegans or vegetarians out there, but it was mighty good, mighty fine.
3: I make no apologies. (laughs) I (laughs) grew up in the South. We had our own beef cattle. But you know, funny enough, as you say that, I will say that I really don't eat a lot of meat. And as soft mm. as my heart is for that environment, you would think I would go completely vegetarian or vegan, but gluten-free vegan is probably the most difficult diet in the world to try to do. So mm. actually, when I do eat meat, I usually have a really good steak a couple of times a year. Honestly, not much more often than that. So my last great meal, I am going to say was probably when my mom was visiting as much as I kind of hate southern cooking cuz I tend to gain a lot of weight during covid anyway my mom was here a year ago she lives in mississippi and when she's here she does southern cooking and she has Beautiful. learned to modify it to to accommodate gluten free but oh my mom is like the best cook ever so i'm trying to bring to mind any particular meal she made while she was here but Growing up, my favorite meal that I always and only got on my birthday was chicken and dumplings. And my mom chicken has learned how to make some really good gluten-free dumplings and gluten-free gravy. And it's fantastic. Well, you know what? So, and I miss my mom.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm going to say exactly the same thing, actually. I don't often talk about family and friends, but I grew up in uh, a rural you farming talk about community. Me. i grew up in a rural farming community where it was all you know roasts and pies and you know i'm actually a child of divorce so growing up it was me and my mother who taught me how to cook and clean and you know i can crochet better than i can do diy right so (laughs) no gender roles
3: when you're raised by a single parent right (laughs) yeah no gender roles
2: totally totally so you know much love to same thing much love to her
3: thank you thank you And you're much, much love to both of our moms, single moms who look at the kids they raise, they probably hang their head in shame. (laughs) 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 We'll have to make sure they hear part of this podcast so they know how much we really love and respect them. So, okay, let's move on to the things that we want to talk about, because we were asking what's hot right now that we want to talk about. we first started talking about Brexit. We also mentioned facial recognition, and I think there was one other that was starting to to ping on us a little bit. But let's start with Brexit, because I'm not really sure that everyone that listens understands the implications of the UK separating from EU, although we've had a year transition, and
1: mm-hmm. the fact
3: that there are new laws And to comply with UK and the EU, you now have to have two sets of representatives and two DPOs and two everything. you got to have border crossing uh, mechanisms, which is a whole nother topic. So what's your thought on it? You're in the UK, right?
2: Yeah, totally correct. I'm just north of London myself. Brexit is the gift that keeps on giving. You know, let's face it, we could make podcasts from now until uh, the end of time talking about Brexit. I have to put my hand on my heart and say that I'm actually a Ramona myself. I'm I'm uh, I'm a remoner. Which means that, you know, I was against it forever from the start, but I guess we are where we are.
3: I was gonna say I, I have no clue what that means.
2: <laughs> a remainer. A remainer, but but the but the, the Brexiteers ah, would call us it. a remoner. Ah. <laughs> but yeah, you're you're totally right. The UK has left the EU and that places UK and EU organizations with a whole nother little headache. I mean, it's fascinating now that we're we're separated. One of the things they did agree in the trade deal between the 11th hour, 24th of December trade deal between the EU and the UK was actually to allow uh, a three-month extension uh, for data transfers. So whilst everyone was really concerned it was going to be an 11th hour, oh my God, we're not, no longer adequate, we can't transfer data to the EU or the EU to us. One of the things they did is sort of pending an adequacy decision, give us a three month, things can carry on as normal for three months while Europe, sits on, you know, with a proverbial sword of Damocles hanging above the, the UK's head <laughs> in terms of data transfer. So, you know, we have a, a three-month window. However, what did change on the uh, 1st of January is we now have what we call the UK GDPR. So for right. data, so for, for data processed before the 31st of December 2020, the data was covered by the EU GDPR. And for data after the uh, 31st of December, the 1st of January, it's now covered by the UK GDPR. And the UK GDPR, you can find it. Okay,
3: hold on. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. So this is kind of like if you revise your privacy notice, the revision only applies to data moving forward. All the data moving back, you have to put under the provisions you collected it. I had not considered yeah. that the data before Brexit would still apply to regular GDPR and the data after Brexit would fall under UKG. I guess I I don't guess I really yeah. thought about it.
2: Yeah, they're, they're calling it frozen GDPR. It makes yeah. perfect
3: sense, yeah. of course, but...
2: <laughs> they call it the frozen, frozen G- GDPR. GDPR. Yeah, which is a really interesting point of view, because of course, if the EU changes the GDPR, then the data before the 31st of... Uh, December, will still be subject to what was the U- EU law at the time. Let it go. Let
3: it go. Yeah,
2: I know. I know. It's crazy. But So if you really want to know the state of the UK law, and you're going to love this, this is a mouthful. The state of the UK law at the moment is called the UK GDPR, which is mm-hmm. the EU GDPR, as amended by the Data Protection Act 2018, as amended by the data protection and electronic communication regulations brackets EU withdrawal amendments brackets regulations 2019 as amended by the EU by the data protection and privacy electronic communication regulations brackets EU withdrawal amendments close brackets Regulations 2020 there you go <laughs> done that is the name of the current data protection law in the UK so it's the The GDPR, as amended by the Data Protection Act, as amended by two sets of of withdrawal regulations.
3: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I have to say, TrustArc has already gone through and cross-mapped both of them, of course, and cross-mapping them into the TrustArc framework, which when this is deployed externally, it's going to be fantastic because our goal is to map all of the laws of the world into it. And, of course, we have our priorities. Mm -hmm. POPIA is our In in this first set that we plan to have. And so we've mapped the GDPR against the uh, UK GDPR. And I have to tell you, one point that irritates me is there is no 41.3. Correct. It's omitted. There's a 41.2 and a 41.4, but Mm 41.3, it's not reserved, it's omitted. Mm-hmm. So you, you skip numbers, and so for these anal retentive attorneys who who like things to be orderly, it's very irritating. But on the other hand, had they omitted it and then changed the numbering between the two, that would have irritated me as well. So
2: the the difficulty is you can't read the GDPR alone anymore. Uh, you've got to right. read it alongside the UK Data Protection Act 2018, and that comes to in completely five parts. understand it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that comes in five different parts, and actually, so. The UK Data Protection Act 2018 has got Part 2, which, if you like, is the amendments to the GDPR. It's got a Part 3, which is law enforcement processing. It's got a Part 4, which is security services processing. And then it's got a Part 5, which is all the powers of the regulator and the information commissioner. So we've actually got three separate privacy regimes under the same law here in the UK. We've got the UK GDPR. Then we've got a privacy law for law enforcement. And a privacy law for the national security services. Oh,
3: interesting!
2: Yeah, yeah, all under the Data Protection Act 2018. It's got it's got different parts that that, that refer to each. I mean, the principles are largely the same, but of course there are different exemptions and different you know standards of tests. Well, historically,
3: the UK has been a fantastic partner to the United States, and so I don't imagine they're going to do a lot that you know, we we wouldn't like. We've always worked very well together. It's just mm. trying to get past SHRIMS 2 and all the the border transfers and everything, which, as we mentioned with Helen Dixon last week, which, by the way, congratulations for being on season two following Helen Dixon there.
2: A hard act to follow. Hard act to follow. <laughs> I mean, she was amazing. She was amazing. Right. Mm. But
3: we discussed the fact that Christopher Hoff has been appointed to the Commerce Department to lead the negotiations for the new SHIELD. And you and I, have a little conversation going back and forth on Twitter about what are we going to call the new one? Now I don't know if you liked <laughs> my last suggestion, which was what was it, Pierce, Pier Totem Locomotor, which is the spell that McGonagall used to activate the guards around yeah. the hall in in the last one. I I thought you might get that, but yeah.
2: well, yeah, no, no, was I'm a I'm a Potter fan as much as anyone, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we've been through. Marvel Avengers with Captain America raising his mighty shield and, you know, the, the, we've gone, the we've gone past- the around
3: it. the globe, which was Ultron or Ultron yeah. something and vision. Yeah. I
2: like the Ultron initiative. It sounds suitably ominous, right? I mean, what's really interesting actually, when, when, we, when we look at the UK is it's it, it now culturally, we share a language and entertainment right. with the US. Now that we are away from the EU for all intents and purposes. You know, it, it, the idea is to free us up to be a little bit more commercial, a little bit right. free of EU red tape was the idea. But we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place in that we are geographically close to the EU. We share, a, share, you know, 99% of our legislative framework. If we wanted to get closer to the US and the more commercial model in the US, we'd then find difficulties in data transfers under Schrems 2 that right. the US would find. I mean, we're not guaranteed an adequacy decision within three months. Right. You know we've got a law here called Ripper, the Regulation of Investory Powers Act, which has been much criticised by surveillance organisations. People like Big Brother Watch and Privacy International have taken the UK government to court for its use of Ripper for mass surveillance. Much well, the yeah, same because as the US.
3: what most people don't realise is even though SHRIMS2 focused on the US surveillance powers yeah. and what we do. The U.S. is not the only or the worst country in the world with government no, surveillance. No. It's just God we no. just no. happen to have the really big, really cool tech companies.
2: You happen to have the really big, really cool uh, tech companies. You had, of course, the Snowden event. I'm not know. talking about that. <laughs> Depending on, on your views of that, that, you know, really raised it in public consciousness. And I think it's all snowballed from there. But yeah, I think if you look at any Western organization or any Western government, you know, I think the UK has escaped further scrutiny because it was part of the club. And actually the event of leaving that club will now mean that things that might've avoided scrutiny will now be put under scrutiny. Right. Uh, And I don't think. Got a
3: question for you. Basic question. Is the UK still considered part of the European continent because it's an island?
2: Yes. Okay. There's a couple of interesting wrinkles. So we Ah! asked, we are we're still part of Europe we just don't no, no longer part of the economic and political union we're no, no longer right. part of the EU yeah but we're still part of the continent we're still Europeans for for want of a better word. but yes you're, I mean psychologically that water is a barrier let's face it right? psychologically it is. that water is a barrier. but but Ireland is so you know, separated by two sets of water and has has only got a geographical connection with the UK so you know but they're still in so it's it's a really interesting area especially when you look at the Island, Northern Ireland border and the political situation there, you know, it becomes oh, yeah. fascinating to me. As you, you know, you'll happen to know my surname's O'Brien, therefore it's not a great surprise to find out where my ancestry lies. You know, and I've, I've always considered myself a citizen of the world, let alone Europe. A couple of other interesting little wrinkles. The UK is still part of the Council of Europe. Oh,
3: I hadn't thought about that. Now,
2: for those people who don't know, the Council of Europe is 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 a very separate organization from the EU. It's a international organization of 47 countries, as opposed to the EU, which is an economic-political union of 27 countries. So the Council of Europe actually places – means that the UK has signed up to things like the European Convention on Human Rights, right. Convention 108 – And we're still subject to the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, even though we're no longer subject to the jurisprudence of the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. Ooh. So we've See these these
3: are some of the nuances that I haven't (laughs) even considered, which is no surprise to anyone because I'm so bad at even geography, I call it geometry. But it's though I had not considered the complexities there, but of course. You know, people um, in the United Kingdom, of course, are very aware of those issues. I'm pretty sure the average person on the street are.
2: Yeah, the average person on the street might not be. If you're a human rights lawyer, you're very aware of it. That we're still subject, but you know, the average person on the street probably wouldn't recognize the difference between Council of Europe and the European Union. In fact, whenever I deliver training courses to new privacy professionals, we kind of start with the history and we go through the difference between the eu and the council of europe but not a lot of people know that you know not a lot of people know that you know and uh, a lot of people even realize now i don't feel so stupid yeah yeah not a lot of people here are like but not of like europeans you know when when i teach you know for the iapp and, and i teach like the cpi for example right you know and I, I talk to people about how the eu works and how you get a regulation passed and it's amazing the amount of europeans that aren't aware <laughs> you know there's Have no clue about their own constitutional makeup which is you know i'm
3: okay with that because here in the united states of course over facebook we've had so many people that are now medical experts and then they went to being constitutional experts and it's funny how the opinion switch back and forth about where your first amendment right for freedom of speech fits in depending on what side of the issue you're on and then when you go to another issue your opinion switches to the other side So trust me, I kind of get it because people here in the United States really don't fully understand our constitutional rights either. So that that makes that makes a lot of sense, which, by the way, my family is descended from British royalty.
2: Hence the name. Directly.
3: We can. (laughs) No, hence the name Fairchild. I come from the Fairchild Fairchild. lineage, which were illegitimate sons of a sitting king who were targeted for assassination because they were recognized as in the line for the throne. And so supporters got the two children out. And I think the king was something, the fair, I have it in a documented book, something. So when they brought them to the United States, one went north, one went south, and they were called Fairchild.
2: Wonderful. It's uh, funny enough, I mean, you're th- being an O'Brien doesn't actually necessarily mean you've got a direct li- line of connection to the high king of Ireland, Brian Baru, in the, in, the, in the 10th <laughs> century. I well, mean, you should. If, if you were the cook in the castle, you were of Brian, you were of the oh, clan O'Brien. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily mean bloodline. You know, there's a lot of O'Briens out there. We were very prolific. It's, it's the Catholic uh, background. So
3: it's kind of cool, which is interesting nowadays with everybody doing genetic testing and finding new family members.
2: Yeah. I mean, we've had some very interesting genetic testing cases here. You know, people who have gone and had their genetic testing done, you know, and found out that their siblings are only 50% genetically related. and uh, (laughs) Or they're not related to their father
3: or things along that line. So for some people, I guess it's good and some it's not. But it's interesting because I'm also uh, part Native American and... Not a member of the tribe and in trying to go back and be able to prove lineage, Mm -hmm. which I'm very proud of being part Choctaw. But in doing research, and I don't know this has changed, but in doing research, it turns out that a lot of Native Americans do not participate in this type of sampling. And so the records with all of the genetic information are sadly lacking in Native Mm -hmm. American DNA because people always say, well, can't you just get a DNA test and prove it? Apparently not. And I mean, the tribes probably wouldn't accept it anyway. You
2: and I, we, we keep finding out we've got these things in common because I've recently tried to trace my ancestry as well because I was, I'll be perfectly honest, I was after an Irish passport. Because I figured, you know, it'd be nice to still have a European passport. And, you know, so I, I looked at my relatives, my Irish relatives, and what's fascinating is because of the Troubles in Ireland in the sort of the very early 1900s, they actually, one of the things they did during the Troubles was burnt down the public records office.
3: Oh, my goodness.
2: Yeah. So if you're going past the early 1900s, you've literally got to find gravestones in tiny little churches in the villages to be able to trace your ancestry.
3: Oh, my goodness. My dad yeah. comes from, I think it's Scottish, not Irish. Mm. And he was big into genealogy and tracing things back. And mm. when I was going through the records recently, we have lots of pictures of little gravestones in little churches mm. way back mm. in nowhere. So it's really interesting because my, my dad's last name was White. And so Mm. they, he can trace his genealogy, our genealogy all the way back to Scotland as well, which is interesting. But yeah, you know, you can't, I mean, on Facebook, you can buy a little acre of land or something and become a Lord.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You can give yourself some sort of title, uh, be a laird of straf glide for having you know a small square of land there right so doesn't uh,
3: lady have a nice ring to it in
2: a square of land in a scottish distillery because i bought a, a bottle of whiskey and apparently if you go and visit they'll take you and show you your little square of land you know but oh, i'm sure it's the same one they show to everybody
3: nice. <laughs> i like that it, i like that uh, a lot so if we're on genetics let's move to the next ooh. little step on facial recognition because a lot of There's a lot of issues in facial recognition that comes to heritage and genetics and appearance and everything.
2: There is. And I think over the last few days, we've seen a plethora of reports. You know, we've seen the Canadian investigation into Clearview AI that was fairly damning of its use in law enforcement. You know, I think their point was it's unreasonable for an individual to have their, you know, to be in a permanent police lineup. Is that essentially having had no wrongdoing of their own. And I think that's a really good analogy. But I've been seeing a lot more. We're then seeing the Council of Europe guidance that came out recently that really looked and was quite strict. It kind of said, Yeah, facial recognition has got its benefits, but you know, we shouldn't be seeing, you know, and we can see how it might be useful for law enforcement, but you know, targeted and justified. But, you know, we shouldn't see it for commercial reasons in shopping centers, you know. Right. We, we shouldn't see it. Uh, we shouldn't see private entities doing it just to, you know, scan their employees. You know, we've seen right. the rise of facial recognitions in airports to get in and out of your planes. And, you know, what's always sexy and new now is tomorrow the new normal, you know. Right. And we, the way I kind of consider it is is when I think about my grandparents, they kept their money underneath their mattress, you know, quite literally. Right. They they didn't trust bank accounts. and My you know, stepdad's then,
3: the same way now.
2: Yeah. And then direct debits came out and then, you know, sort of itemized billing and then paperless billing. And now if you don't want to pay by direct debit, or if you don't want to have a credit card, or if you don't want to have a mobile phone, or if you don't you just can't interact with society anymore. Right. Or, or they start to charge you more for wanting a paper statement. Oh, or, exactly, exactly. So what we accept as a convenient solution today or, or a sexy new thing becomes the mandate of tomorrow. I was, on a, I was on a panel way back in 2001 that looked at something called ANPR, Automatic Number Plate Recognition. And that was supposed to be around the city of London for anti-terrorism purposes. And it's now on every petrol station forecourt and parking garage in the country. <laughs> right. So... So, you know, we have to be careful when we open Pandora's box, it cannot be closed again. Well, that's
3: true. And here in the United States, I think San Francisco deployed facial recognition and then pulled it back. Yes, yes. And so we've seen a lot of opportunities here where it's been deployed. And then people realize that the algorithms that the facial recognition are built on, probably not built on the best data.
2: Yeah, I mean... Here's where we start to talk about data ethics and think about bias. And one of my clients, they do fingerprint recognition to distribute aid in uh, difficult places in the world, places like Afghanistan or Rwanda. And they basically have got a fingerprint device attached to a mobile phone. And the reason why they were successful is they were actually loaded Cambridge University students. And the reason why they were successful is they worked out all fingerprint software had been designed on Western white fingerprints. And if they took it to an area where, you know, you worked harder manually and your fingerprints were more broken or you were a different ethnicity, the false positive rate skyrocketed. So their real innovation, if you like, was simply to collect a wider and more diverse sample size to train the fingerprint software that they attach to the mobile phone, the fingerprint readers, they attach to the mobile phone. And they use that to make sure. Yeah,
3: yeah that's one of the things that we discussed with the data engineering session, our season episode that we did last season on how it's, it's along the lines of garbage in, garbage out. But when you're an engineer developing these technologies, you're not thinking about the wide range that might be possible that if you only train the system on a certain set of data, you might very well be missing critical elements in other sets of data. And of Of course, course, you know, here in the United States, we're pretty limited in a lot of the data sets that go in. And one of the examples that we have brought up, and I don't want to distract us from facial recognition, was about what's the likelihood of someone going to prison and that AI kind of algorithm. But if you're only basing it on the people that are in prison, well, there is a huge discrepancy in the populations that go to prison and those that don't based on whatever mm-hmm. reasons there are out there, valid or not. Yeah. The truth is there is a hugely different population in prison as compared to the ratio of the populations in the world, even in mm-hmm. the country. And so garbage in, garbage out. If you're not training it with the right data, you're not going to have the right algorithm.
2: And then there's the people who don't fit the mold, the non-standard, you know, right. you know the people whose face for whatever reason might be non-standard. And I hate to use that term, but, you know, it, essentially, you know, an, an individual who may have suffered some sort of facial disfigurement right. or, you know, they don't fit the mold and therefore this technology cannot or will not apply to them and they end up being discriminated against for that sort right. of reason let alone talking about ethnicity or, 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 or anything like that. So, yeah. and then, you know, once you've got that data, then it becomes quite easy to target certain groups based on certain criteria or, you know, we've seen it on I mean, things like Google searches. I mean, people, if, if people search for, you know, a white individual, you know, you can just put in some very easy Google searches, white man, you know, black woman, whatever you want to put in and just see the sorts of results you get back. And the white man, you get, you know, people in suits, you know? Right. Or white hands and black hands was the one I think the research was done on, where white hands were all yeah. shaking, shaking hands in business, but black hands were all like looking up in help, you know, or supplication, or do you know what I mean? It was so. Yeah, I saw that story really really when careful. it came out,
3: so we'll make sure that we find it and post that. But yeah, that yeah. was that was really interesting to consider that this is what's driving our perceptions in society. And yeah. we can try, we and we should try, to change perceptions in society, but we have a lot of work ahead of us to get the right data out yes. there yeah. in the right hands. But then we have privacy concerns about not wanting to share data.
2: And transparency concerns as well. One of the biggest problems we found with all these artificial intelligence companies is… Not just the amount of data they're getting, it's how they're getting it. They're scraping it from what they call public sources. Now, this is, this might be a US EU divide or, but here, but in, in US, I, f- I think the, the historical position is if it's available on the internet, tough luck. Someone's made it public. We can yeah. take it. In the UK and the EU, the position is slightly different of, you know, just because you can find it doesn't mean you can use it. You need to have a legal basis. You need to be transparent. You need to be telling people that you are collecting their data. Now,
3: Now that's the interesting thing. You can put in your privacy notice that we will acquire all publicly available information we can, including what's available online free. However, that's not the notice people need. People need the notice when they provide that data that can be scraped up. And how do you... Yeah, how do you yeah. go back and do that? Because it's that's the interesting part. And I've started hearing the terminology uh, zero zero person data. There's first <laughs> yeah. person data, third or party zero party data, first party data, third party data. Now there's zero party data, which is
2: well. This is where the facial recognition becomes quite interesting to me because you know we talk about a lot about well, it's okay to get the data as long as it's anonymized or pseudonymized. Anonymizing someone's face. How? Yeah, exactly. Now, I think what's interesting is you look at some of the solutions that technology companies use, especially the security features on things like uh, a mobile phone, you know, a fruit-based mobile phone, should we say. They've come up with some quite interesting ones in that when you put your fingerprint to the fingerprint reader, when you look at the phone and the camera scans your face in order to open it, they don't actually store a picture of your face.
3: Right. They store the points.
2: Yeah. And what they do is they then almost crunch that down into, uh, a, into like a very short token, if you like. Right. But you actually lose data during that crunch. So even though you, you've got a unique reference, if you like, you've divorced it from the real world image that it was generated from. And then all they do is the next time you look at your phone, they take that same picture, they crunch it down, and they look to see if those two tokens match. Right. Which, really degrades, yeah, yeah. which
3: degrades the high-quality possibility, but it upgrades the privacy component of it, which is really yeah. interesting.
2: So my question is, with facial recognition, do we need the faces? Do we need the pictures? Right. Or do we need it to be a, a mathematical representation of those faces, right. a tokenization of those faces? Could we divorce it from the real world? I was involved in the London Underground, here, London, the, the tube. When they did a, sorry, when they did a, a Wi-Fi tracking trial, they were taking people's mobile phone signals uh, and seeing where they hit Wi-Fi routers. Because they knew when people went in and out of the underground, but you could have taken any route in between and they had no way of tracking you. So what they were doing to try and establish traffic flows, they weren't really interested in the person, they were interested in the, in the traffic flow. They were, uh, and you find the DPAA online and it's done with a tool that you might recognize that they've done the DPIA online and that DPIA online, you know, what one of the things they did again was tokenize. They took the mobile phone data, they divorced it, they ran it through an algorithm and an encryption algorithm that produced a unique reference number, but divorced it from what was in the real world. So they could hit wherever that mobile phone hit, they could still track it was the same mobile phone, but divorce it from the MAC address and the stuff the device was actually giving off right. in the first place. So, they got the tracking data, but again, they'd sort of reduce the risk by disassociating it with the individual.
3: Well, let me let me throw a scenario at you. What if you lost the, I don't know of any other way to say it, the scan of people's teeth.
2: Right. Okay.
3: So what if you lost that? Are you jeopardizing privacy? Well, there's no name associated. There's no anything associated with it. I'm like, what's the risk? And they're mm. like, well, it's it's health information is very personal. People can identify deceased individuals by their
2: touch records. Yeah. I
3: said, absolutely. But that means that they have that information already. Somehow hmm. or another, they're taking what they're finding and they're identifying based on information they have. So if we lose a scan of someone's teeth, yes, that's very personal, but it's not helpful to anyone unless they already have that record to compare it to, to know who it is.
2: So privacy is risk-based. You know, we've always known privacy is risk-based or data protection in my world is, is, is risk-based. And yes, you're right. You've always got to say, what's the risk? This is why we do privacy by right. design. This is why we do DPIAs to try and get to that privacy by design standpoint where we're always looking at risk to the individual.
3: Right. And it, it has to be on a practical level. And I get it. I'm very much a privacy advocate. I, duh. But there has to be that practicality based in with it because there's a balance. There has to be a balance between it. And it has to be a balance to people, not in favor of commercial yes. enterprise.
2: I, I, I would agree. You know, that, and again, different starting points, EU, U.S., The EU fundamental right to privacy available to the lowest common denominator. I look at something like the App Store, which is like a US model that says, well, you can have an app for free and you get marketed to and surveilled, or you can pay for the app and the marketing and the advertising goes away. Now, that to me, that's actually almost even something as simple as that. The App Store is at odds with privacy for all. That's privacy for the rich.
3: You know, and that is true because a lot of people I know that switched to a different form of social media recently came back because the form they switched to had a subscription fee. And so they came back to the popular social media because it was free. And that mm. really does bring that message of it's privacy for the rich. It's for who you, what you can pay for. And you don't have to be rich, but I mean, there are certain elements of privacy yeah. that should be widely available that aren't because they come in a premium.
2: Yeah. And I have a problem with, with quite a lot of privacy professionals in the US that are sort of starting off these own your own data campaigns, these monetize your own data, have a data broker who will allow you to sell your data. These commercial companies put a value on it. Why can't we get paid for the use of our data? I understand it. But again, you'll have people selling the, the poorer selling their data as a commodity because they're yeah. disadvantaged and the richer who will be able to invest in the protection of it. So that commercial model- Unintended consequences. Yeah, that commercial model will lead you down a a dark road where you end up segregating society into the have and have nots based on their financial capability to protect their data or to earn money from it, depending on which side of the divide they sit on. And this is where algorithms then take it to the next level. When you get a global company with millions and millions and millions of data they can turn around and say, look, the algorithm is 99.9999999% accurate. Isn't that wonderful? It's not so wonderful for the thousands of people who are the What? Right. Yeah?
3: Exactly. It's
2: not so good for the individual. Yeah? So when you get to algorithmic discrimination at a large scale with huge tech companies, what they consider to be a finite error rate in engineering terms that is a real success for them. It's still a disadvantage for huge groups and numbers of people. And I think that's sometimes forgotten. You know, I I agree. And
3: I think that's a good note for us to stop on because, uh, one, we're trying to make the episodes a little shorter because we've heard people are like, I don't want to run for 50 minutes. I only want to run for 35. So we are, well, we are re- <laughs> <laughs> you know, that doesn't compute with me. So. But, so we are trying to be very responsive to our fans. So I'm going to bring us to a close with that. And I do not do j- as good of a job as Paul does. Thank you for listening to our episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please tell your friends and colleagues about us. Please make sure to also rate and review us only if you love us. In your favorite <laughs> podcast app. Should you have any questions, suggestions, fan comments? I love the compliments and the comments that we get in from our fans. Or if you want to be a guest, please reach out to us via SeriousPrivacy at TrustArc.com or on Twitter at Podcast Privacy. You will find me on Twitter as Heart of Privacy. And you'll find Paul at EuroPaulB. You can also find us on LinkedIn. You can find TrustArc on LinkedIn or uh, Twitter. You can find Ralph at.
2: You'll find me on Twitter at, at IGR O'Brien.
3: Nice. And we cannot thank y'all enough for being fans, for making our podcast popular. We're glad we're giving you what you want. And we look forward to bringing a lot more to you. So I think Paul usually signs off with bye for now, but that, that's not me. So I'm just going to say. Bye, y'all.
2: And let me sign off as well by just saying a big, big thank you to Kay and Paul for inviting me on as co-host. And I'm sure I'm a poor, poor, poor replacement for Paul. And I'm sure he'll be back in your ears very, very soon. Thank you.
3: (laughs) Thank you, Paul. Oh, my goodness. Listen at that. Thank you, Ralph. Bye, y'all.
0: That was Serious Privacy.
1: Hey, listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further.
0: Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI.
1: TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost effectively.
0: And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software.
1: Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting.
0: TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that. Helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance privacy and security.
1: Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework.
0: If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts.